I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Thanks for listening to Cauldron. I'm your host, Cullen, and today we have a very cool little story about the raid on Deerfield, Massachusetts. To hear what sources I used and to get a sneak peek into next week's episode, hang around until the end. All right, let's get stuck in. Living at the edge of the world heightened one's senses, even when asleep. John Caitlin Sr.'s eyes flew open, instantly aware that something was wrong. The first fear of every home was fire, but this smell was too faint. He stopped to listen. There was something else that had come with the smoke. Strange, muffled noises. Yells. He sprang from the bed, grabbed his flintlock from the corner, and went to the small diamond-shaped window to see what the distorted glass would show. Not very much, but enough to know something was wrong. Wiping away his breath, he could see there were far too many shapes moving around out there before sunrise. And of course, the source of the smoke was now clear. The neighbor's roof was ablaze. Quietly, John Sr. shook his wife awake and had her grab a warm cloak, then head for the root cellar. Moving around the hulking mass of the center fireplace, John Sr. took a moment to gaze at his granddaughter. Still sleeping, he could see little eight-year-old Beth's blonde hair under her nightcap. John Sr. woke his adult daughters. Hurriedly, they grabbed whatever they could to stay warm and with young Elizabeth joined their mother. John Sr. scrambled down the steep single staircase to the first floor. His sons, Jonathan, John Jr., and Joseph, stood by the fireplace shaking off sleep. Or maybe it was the cold. Or the fear. Living in the wilds of New England at the edge of civilization had taught them how to live with fear, but this was different. More real. They had either heard their father or the growing ruckus outside and knew something was very wrong. The young frontiersmen loaded their muskets and looked to their father for direction. John Jr. was sent to guard the women on account of his young age. The father had expected an argument from the son, but the gravity of the moment had kept the boy's tongue in check, and he had sprinted off towards the cellar. Jonathan and Joseph were ordered to block up the small windows on either side of the main door. The hope was that this would keep the raiding natives from torching the house. John Sr. walked to the door and stood for a moment. Stealing himself, he swung the door open and was immediately stunned by how cold it was. Even for the pre-dawn hour at the tail end of a New England February, this was particularly cold. 
He felt like the icy night air was tearing his chest open, making his head dizzy and numb. Somehow, it was even making his legs give out. John Caitlin Sr. slumped down in the doorway of his home on the edge of the world and looked down. From his chest was sticking the handle of a tomahawk. The feathers and beads tied to the end of the shaft had soaked through and dripped something black. As his eyes drifted, John saw it wasn't black at all, but red, blood red. Eyes now moving up as he slumped back and his head jerked, John saw a world on fire with chaos. The raid on Deerfield, Massachusetts, February 29th, 1704, was one of hundreds of small, violent little clashes that littered the colonial frontier throughout the 16 and 1700s. Deerfield is one of the better known actions, but it's more so because of the events that came after the raid itself rather than for any specific part of the, the, the fighting or the tactics or strategy or even really the impact on the overall war. Uh, most of the uh, impact that it had was kind of a, uh, a cultural one. And, and, and really, the, the fighting was no different than what you saw uh, on a number of different occasions. This was pretty much the way it was on the frontier. Uh, time and time again, when Europeans went to war, the violence would spill over to their colonial holdings, and the war of the Spanish succession was really no different. In North America, this European war took the form of Queen Anne's War, or the Third Indian War to the British, and the Second Intercolonial War to the French. Because the North American colonies were so far from Europe, and the, the, the space and, and territories involved were so large, the forces that fought in these particular colonial battles, but in actually, uh, in, in throughout history, in colonial wars, the European forces are very small by comparison to what you might see in a European war. Uh, to make up for these tiny, regular forces, uh, just like they did in King Philip's War before it and the French and Indian War after, both the British and the French would use Native American tribes extensively in Queen Anne's War. And again, in, in almost all colonial wars, we see a fairly large contingent of Native troops to supplement the small European regular forces. In many cases during Queen Anne's War, both sides, the British and the French, and their Native American allies would be fielding only a few hundred men at any given time. So battles of the, the large set-piece variety were almost non-existent at this point in North America. And adapting to the land and the resources available, commanders had to get kind of creative. So you saw a lot of raids and ambushes and guerrilla tactics and, and these were used to great effect. Once we learned how to use them from the, the, the Native Americans, uh, the, the various commanders here in North America would implement them and get great results out of them. 
the the general vastness of the arena, you know, the entirety of North America, and the scarcity of fighters meant that these irregular tactics had to have kind of an outsized impact. Uh, fear really became the goal of, of both sides, both belligerents. And that's with good reason. The lines of communications within the colonies were surprisingly efficient, and, and nothing really spread quite as quickly as gossip and fear. Uh, to achieve the maximum amount of fear with the smallest amount of men, both sides, the French and the British, resorted to fairly extreme forms of violence and terror, from scalping to uh, using fire on villages to kidnapping to human trades to maiming, torture, all sorts of terrible things were used. And the whole idea was to really heighten the impact of these small uh, little engagements. And Deerfield was no different. It might not have been the biggest or the worst attack on a colonial village, but it certainly scared the hell out of the rest of the colonies. The Connecticut River Valley was good land for farming. It was fertile and rich. The Puckamatoc tribe, uh, real quick, just a heads up, guys. Uh, I will probably butcher some of these Native American words. I fully take the blame. I am very sorry if I do. Uh, please forgive me. I am not familiar with all of them. I'm kind of just winging it. So um, if I do, let me know in an email or go to the website or whatever and just uh, shoot me a little correction. All right. Uh, so again, the Connecticut River Valley, very good land for farming, very fertile, very rich. And this Puckamatoc tribe chose the area of modern-day Deerfield for their primary village. And for a while, they thrived in this, uh, this kind of western, northern part of Massachusetts. However, as with anything, war with a powerful enemy, in this case the Mohawk tribe, and Europe's number one export, smallpox and disease, each played a role in pretty much decimating this Puckamatuck people. So they went from fairly successfully farming and living and existing in the, the Connecticut River Valley to dwindling to the point where they were easily taken advantage of. By the late 17th century, British colonists began pushing ever deeper into the Western, kind of to them unknown, and eventually they, uh, they ran into the Puckamatoc. And the Puckamatoc were on good land, and the British wanted that land. So in a scene that would become pretty much all too common to the Native Americans, they would end up signing over their entire land holdings, and uh, it was under fairly dubious circumstances. Whether it was intentionally deceitful on the part of the colonists, or it was a, a kind of lost-in-translation situation, it's hard to say. But somehow, the colonists ended up with the rights to the land, and they settled the village of Deerfield. There were some early troubles. There were raids, Native American attacks, and at one point, they, the village of Deerfield was actually forced to abandon uh, the, the town, 
Um, but by the dawn of the 18th century, Deerfield had been uh, a fairly, uh, a relatively calm and peaceful place to live for about 20 years. It was, however, also fairly isolated. That isolation was about to become an issue, and the calm and peace were about to come to an end. In 1701, the European War of the Spanish Succession, God damn it, that's a tough one for me, uh, began, and shortly after it started, violence began to pop up all over North America. In late summer 1703, a mixed French Abenaki Indian force struck the southern coast of modern-day Maine, campaigning along the coastline, uh, and they ended up killing and capturing between 150 and 300 people in the Casco Bay area, so modern-day Portland to Wells, uh, a bunch of little of the coastal towns in between. And this is actually uh, my hometown. I live in that area, and it's a cool little bit of history to kind of dig into, and I think I might do, uh, I might cover one of those battles at some point in the future. Uh, anyhow, the French forces that were involved did enough damage to put the rest of New England and the colonies on high alert. So everybody heard about this little campaign in Maine, and everybody was on high alert expecting a uh, major Native American attack to pop up at any point in time. Uh, the rel relative isolation and the fact that it was essentially on the front line of the war made Deerfield a pretty obvious target, uh, but it was also one of those targets where there's not much to be gained by taking it, so it it's kind of hiding in plain sight. The, the townspeople began rehabilitating the palisade, which is a, uh, a palisade's a pretty basic wall of wood that uh, is, is tree logs or branches, and it provides an enclosure and some cover, but it, it really isn't going to hold off a truly determined attacker. Think of your classic, like, medieval village. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about a basic palisade. Deerfield was also sent some extra militiamen by the Massachusetts governor, Dudley, but the problem is with militiamen, they're not really professional soldiers. They're kind of, uh, they're almost uh, similar to the National Guard where they would practice together and get together and, and work on their drills and, and firing, but they also need to go home and do their day job. So in the wintertime when the snow started to get heavy, the militia that Governor Dudley had sent to Deerfield basically goes home because winter is really no time for warfare in New England. So even though that happens with the winter in full stride, though, the French continued to make minor attacks all along the frontier. And these kind of little prodding, investigative attacks convince Governor Dud Dudley that there is something in the works. He's not sure what it is, he's not sure how it's going to happen or where it's going to happen, but something is coming. So Dudley decides to dispatch another 
permanent contingent of militia, and he sends 20 militiamen to Deerfield in early February of 1704, and these men show up like the 20th, the 24th of February. Uh, so by the end of February, the, the defensive forces that are inside the town of Deerfield in their newly done-up palisade uh, essentially, you've got about 70 semi-trained militia and townsfolk. While the Deerfielders were trying to stay alert, even though nothing seemed to be happening, the French were making moves up in Canada. The Connecticut River Valley was a high-value target, and so preparations for an attack had been in the works for a while. Now, a number of little setbacks, like they, they lost one of their commanders and they had to kind of adjust their, their plan of attack, forced things to slow down. But essentially what ended up happening is uh, the, the force that left Montreal in January, uh, heading south for, for the New England colonies, was a large heterogeneous army led by a man named Jean-Baptiste Hertel de Rovel. The army was made of some 300 warriors. That's, uh, that's going to be 200 Abenaki, Iroquois, which they were probably likely Mohawk, uh, Wyandot, and Puckamatok. And the Puckamatok have a little added incentive. They are kind of on a revenge mission here because this is, again, their, their homeland that they're going back to. There were also 48 French militiamen and townsfolk as well as marines that were coming out of Montreal. And along the way, as they're passing through, I think it was Vermont, they added another 20 to 30 Penacock warriors, which is another uh, Native American tribe. So it was a fairly sizable war band, and it definitely did not go unnoticed. Governor Dudley of Massachusetts again knew it was headed for uh, the Massachusetts colony, but he wasn't sure what the target was. They were kind of able to disguise their, their intentions as they were marching south, and so Dudley was unable or incapable, or he was kind of frozen and didn't end up guessing where the, the general attack was coming. So uh, by the end of February, this this fairly large 300-man uh, warband reaches the Deerfield area, and De Ruvel wisely sets up a supply depot a little over 20 miles from his uh, from the, the town of Deerfield. Then they, you know, with the practiced stealth of a Native American warband, they are able to sneak up within two miles of the town of Deerfield and set up a staging camp. And, and again, that's within two miles of the town that they've targeted. All right, quick break here just to remind you guys that if you like what you're listening to, subscribe and throw the podcast a rating and a review on iTunes. It helps us get us up on the list, and it helps us get heard by more people, which is frickin' cool. If you love what you're hearing, swing over to the Patreon page and donate to the cause. Any amount helps with research materials and recording equipment, and there are some pretty cool perks, like you get to access the Great Commanders series, where I cover one of history's most brilliant military minds. 
You also get uh, early episodes. You get access to some of the research materials. You get access to me personally. So if you have questions or whatever, you can always ask me. Uh, there are some other tier-based rewards, including uh, picking a particular weapon for us to do a deep dive on. Do you like the M1 Abrams? Do you like the uh, the Flintlock or the Trebuchet or the Ballista? Anything like that. If you pick that tier, you get to pick a weapon and we do a deep dive. Uh, if you have a particular battle that you are in love with or that you don't know anything about and you want to learn more, go ahead. That's another tier. You can pick the battle and we'll cover it in the next episode. A... Uh, Basically, it is just there to try and help us build the show into a bigger and better show with more content. So, think of it this way. A dollar a month, a simple dollar a month, makes you a skirmisher, which earns you my undying gratitude and a shout-out in the next episode. So, to find us on Patreon, just click on the link in the show notes. Alright, that's enough of that. Let's get back to the battle. people of Deerfield had taken precautions since the heightened risk of attack had become their reality. The entire town was now sleeping within the palisade, and there were posted guards at the gates. But little did they know that their town was being stalked like a deer. The attackers were noticing everything. One of the major weaknesses that became pretty apparent was that the snowdrifts around the town had been allowed to build up high enough that they were basically the same height as the palisade itself. So just before sunrise, on the morning of February 29th, a small group of men slipped over the wall via the snowdrifts and opened the north-facing gate for the rest of the war band to swarm in. Deerfield resident Reverend Williams said, quote, with horrid shouting and yelling, the raiders launched their attack like a flood upon us, end quote. It's at this point that a strange thing happened, and it's something that might have saved the town from being completely slaughtered. The various tribes, just the sheer number of languages involved on the side of the attackers, made communication pretty choppy, and de Ravel likely found coordination difficult. For some reason, the warband began attacking individual houses, going house to house. This is, uh, this is essentially the right idea in today's urban warfare, but with such a numerical superiority and with the overwhelming advantage of surprise, the raiding force would have been better served if they had just hit as many houses as quickly as possible right from the beginning. If you think about it in terms of uh, what type of gun it would be, think of a shotgun blast instead of pistol fire. Regardless of how it happened or, or what caused them to attack this way, that's exactly how they did it, and they began going house to house, and this gave the, some of the other villagers time to prepare and time to defend their homes and themselves. The fighting was vicious, however. The goal for the attackers was fear, and so they went about killing men, women, and children. 
Tomahawks were swinging deadly arcs through the air and would come crashing down on skulls. Accurate musket fire coming from experienced hunters like the Native Americans would have been far more effective than that of the sporadic, panicked, and undisciplined militia fire. The screams of mothers being ripped away from their children, or worse, from their children's bodies, filled the morning air. The town rang with the sounds of death and despair. The sky was full of billowing smoke. The best way to strike fear into the hearts of a frontier town was with fire, and the French war band knew it. Wherever possible, they would clear a house of defenders, loot it of valuables, and then torch it. Some houses were set alight without having been looted at all, and with the terrified occupants still inside. In some cases, they stayed inside forever. The attackers created a world of mayhem, but because of the poor strategy of going house to house, their victory was not exactly complete. A few houses were able to put up a staunch defense. Benoni Stebbins' home had been attacked later in the assault, and so the people inside had fortified as best they could, and they held on. The smell of powder and smoke, the haunting whoops and war cries of the warriors, and the ever-present screaming and crying coming from the townspeople outside was the soundtrack to the Stebbins' last stand. In a couple other places, similar Fights were happening, and all over the town, there was a struggle for life and death. As the morning grew old, though, the attack began to peter and die out, like all attacks of this nature. Some of the raiders rounded up the human loot and moved them out of town towards their camp, a couple of miles north. The leftover attackers, though, found themselves surprised by a counterattack from a militia force out of Hadley, Mass., Apparently, a young man named John Sheldon had slipped over the wall during the early part of the attack, and he had basically hauled ass to the next town to warn them and beg for aid. This injection of fresh fighters gave heart to the Deerfielders still on their feet and pushed the rest of the attacking force out of town. As the French war band began the long march north with their captives, the Deerfield and Hadley militia gave chase. A rash decision that essentially quickly led to a bloody rebuke from a well-placed Native American ambush. The militiamen scrambled back to Deerfield to await more reinforcements and further direction. As the survivors regrouped and looked around at what was left of their town, the weight of the morning's action set in. Deerfield was now just a shadow of what it had been before the morning began. 17 of the town's 40 homes had been burned, about 40%. The death toll was worse. Some sources had the killed at, uh, at around 58, and some went as low as 44, but all agreed that the attackers had been truly indiscriminate, killing man, woman, and child. In fact, the amount of children killed in the raid came to a gut-wrenching 25. And I really, I tried to find out this seems like a disproportionate number to me, but I could not for the life of me find a, uh, a particular reason or an explanation uh, other than maybe there were a lot more children in the town of Deerfield than there were adults, but 25 children were killed in the morning's action. The survivors left in the town began to 
try and process what had just happened and put the pieces of their lives back together once this terrifying raid was over. However, for those that had been taken, the morning's nightmare really was just the beginning. The 109 English captives were probably aware to some degree of the horror that lay ahead of them. De Ravel intended to force march the entire group 300 miles through the freezing Canadian winter. Fearing the suffering that lay ahead, there were a number of escape attempts in the early stages of the journey. The escape attempts came to an end, however, when the captors promised to torture all that were caught, and de Rovell insisted that they were not empty threats. The terrified captives struggled through snowdrifts and storms to reach captivity. In some cases, whole families had been taken, as was true of the Reverend Williams family. Reverend John Williams, his wife, and five children were all captured and set out on the long walk together. Williams' wife was one of the 20 or so to die on the march. Having had no time to pre prepare for a trip through the frozen north, many just simply died of exposure and privation. Other deaths came at the hands of the captors. The Native Americans killed any that they deemed would not make the trip, which to us seems incredibly harsh, but it has a certain kind of uh, f frontier rationalism that is really hard to debate. Um, I can't say that it's wrong. Obviously, it's horrible, but it makes sense. If you know that, that the person is going to die no matter what, then it's probably not a wise decision to keep feeding them and keep them warm. Uh, at the expense of people that were going to make it. Either way, only 89 prisoners made it to Montreal. And once they were in Montreal, the captives were sold or adopted, or in some cases held for ransom. The final leg of the ordeal began at the end of the long march as the story of the, the redeemed and the irredeemable began. As news of the raid and abduction of a large group of colonists spread, the intended effect that the French had hoped it would have on the populace really never took root. They were shooting for fear, and what instead the French got was anger and a desire for revenge. All along the frontier between Western Mass and Southern Maine, militia bands were posted to secure the borderlands. The price for a Native American scalp skyrocketed from 40 pounds to over 100 pounds per. Small counter-raids into French territory had even been launched hoping to destroy enemy towns and take civilians to make prisoner trades possible. Many New England communities even began to collect donations, and these were pooled into a ransom fund. The sale of, of human beings between tribes and Europeans was extremely common on the frontier, and it seems horrible to us, but again, this was, uh, this was business as business was done at this point in time and in this place on the planet. Negotiations between the British and French colonies 
had at times been rough, and they were influenced heavily by outside events. But by 1706, only two years after the raid, things had progressed far enough for the release of a large number of captives, including Reverend Williams. These people would be forever known as the redeemed. Many of the Deerfield taken had decided to stay, though, and uh, they basically kind of assimilated. They would have joined the French Catholic or Native American societies that they had been uh, brought to after the Long March. Uh, th these people eventually would go on to lead normal lives in their adopted worlds. Uh, one ancestor of a Deerfield captive went on to become a champion for the Catholic Church in Canada and even became an archbishop. Uh, assimilation was particularly common among the very young adults and the children that had been captured. With little memory of what life was like, it was a lot easier for the young to come to grips with their new circumstances. In 1707, Reverend Williams published a book that told of his experiences. The book became a smash hit throughout the colonial wor world. The book is called The Redeemed Captive Returning to Zion, and it tells of the Williams family and ordeal and of the people of Deerfield from the raid to the return. Reverend Williams had four of his children among the redeemed, but his young daughter, Eunice, stayed. She was eight when she was taken, and when she was 16, she joined a Mohawk family, taking the name Aungote, which means, quote, she was taken and placed, end quote. By 1713, Aungote had married a Mohawk, and Queen Anne's war was over. Well, hot damn, that was the raid on Deerfield, Massachusetts. A uh, crazy, incredible story of early American brutality and survival. There was a ton of information to cover there, so as always, if I got something wrong, shoot me a message on the website, and I'll correct it in the next episode. Also, real quick, just to get it out there before somebody emails me and says, oh, they did it for a bell, uh, there was a myth or a legend that came around in the late 1800s that the Native American raid was trying to recover some kind of bell that had been taken by the Deerfield townspeople, uh, it was very quickly debunked almost as soon as that myth was uh, made up. It's not true. There's no bell. But uh, go ahead and make me believe otherwise, I guess. Uh, so again, shoot me the issues if you have any. Uh, start sending in your theories. Just click the Your Theories link in the show notes. Uh, with this battle, again, there are some very interesting possibilities about how it could have gone in one direction or the other. So send me your cool ideas, or your questions, or your thoughts, or anything at all. Check out the website in the show notes for the sources I used for this episode. It's pretty heavy on website uh, sources, not as many book sources, simply because it's not really a... Uh, I couldn't... F in the books that I have, I couldn't really find too many references or mentions... 
it's not a major or decisive battle. It's just an interesting little side story. So go ahead and check out some of the websites that are on the uh, on cauldron.com, and those are my sources. One of the really good ones that I used was 1704.deerfield.history.museum. The link is in the show notes. It's an interactive site. It's got a ton of cool information, artwork, chock full of just little thought nuggets. So check that out. Go to Instagram and Facebook for cool images and to vote on what battles we cover next. And please rate and review on iTunes. Give me those reviews. I need them. Good, bad, whatever. Just send me, uh, send me some reviews if you have the time. Also, don't forget to subscribe and share this with a friend. Let's get a bigger conversation going. I really want to try and, uh, and expand as much as we can over the next year, uh, try and get into as many ears as possible. So send it along to a friend, post it on your social media, do what you can. Uh, and I appreciate it, and I thank you. All right, next week we are covering a very controversial, not so much a battle, uh, we are covering an event. We'll go with an event. And I really want to get a kind of a debate going about this. We are covering the bombing of Dresden in 1945. Was it justified? Or was it a war crime? So join us next week while we cover that. And thanks for listening. Have a good one.